Hi, and welcome to the C-Suite Perspective Podcast, where we talk about systems and processes. My name is Chris Gilseth, and I'm the COO of Amazatic Solutions, an agency that develops apps and custom software solutions. The mission of this podcast is to bring together experienced leaders so that we can share ideas and together elevate the industry. If you want to be a guest on our show or know somebody that's a good fit, go to go.amazatic.com forward slash apply. That is go.amazatic.com forward slash apply. So my name is Chris Yelseth, and I am the COO of Amazatic Solutions, mm-hmm. which is a, uh, a software development agency. And I've been in tech and in startups almost my whole career. And I, I, I just love it. I love the energy of, of formulating new ideas. I love to see them come into fruition. Mm-hmm. I love to be part of them, which is why you know, I'm a serial entrepreneur. But in my current role, I love helping others, taking you know, what I've learned and giving that experience to, to others so they can leverage that and, and the projects that they do and that we you know, build cool tech for them to, to visualize it or, or not just visualize it, but make it become a reality. So that's a little bit about me and uh, and uh, you know this podcast. We talk also about kind of systems and processes, mm-hmm. and that is a big part of starting and, and especially kind of scaling and growing a business. And, and you know that very well. And I have some some questions for you around that as well. But I, I want uh, you to get a chance first to introduce yourself and, and tell mm-hmm. the audience kind of who you are. Okay. And. Yeah, let's take it from there. Okay, great. This is great, Chris. So do you want me to just start right now? Yep, go ahead. Okay, we'll kick it. My name is Steve Hoffman, and I am the founder and CEO of Founderspace, which is a global startup incubator and accelerator. So we work all over the world with entrepreneurs scaling their businesses. In fact, we have over 50 partners in 22 countries. I'm also the author of the award-winning book, Make Elephants Fly, which is all about the process of radical innovation. And my new book, Surviving a Startup, published by HarperCollins, which is everything entrepreneurs need to know to grow their businesses and survive. And Chris, it's great to be here with you today. Thank you. And I looked into those books and I actually have some questions about those. So we're going to get to those in a second because there's a lot of um, really cool content in those books. And so uh, so I want to get into that a little bit. But I, I want to start actually a little bit about learning. So Founder Space got connections in 50 different countries um, and you've been nominated the number one um, incubator or or accelerator for overseas companies. That's right. Startups. Tell me a little bit about the background and kind of what was the goal and idea when you started out? Well, like so many startups, Founderspace began not as a, an idea for a company. It actually began with me helping out my friends. So I had done two bootstrap startups, and three venture-funded startups in Silicon Valley. So I was very experienced, raised a lot of capital, and all my friends started to come to me. 
And they were like, Steve, can you help me with my business plan? Steve, can you introduce me to investors? Steve, how do I go to market? All these questions that entrepreneurs have. And I was just helping them out, you know, over coffee and in their homes, get their businesses going. And then I started to publish the questions they had and the answers I came up with on my blog. And I called it founderspace.com. And more and more entrepreneurs started to come to me. So we started to hold roundtables. And then we got a space in San Francisco where we set up our own startup incubator and accelerator. And then entrepreneurs started to come to us because we were very early on. This was over a decade ago. They started to come to us from all over the world, seeking that Silicon Valley magic. And the more we engaged with, they started to invite us to their countries to actually run programs with them. So we worked very closely in South Korea with the government and local incubators and accelerators running startup programs there in Taiwan, in China, all across Europe. And we've just been growing ever since. Well, that is super exciting. And so I, I saw on your side, you have co-working spaces and you obviously have both the mentoring and everything. And some of that is online, right? And some of that is uh, physical location-based. Yeah, absolutely. Since COVID, we did a big push online. So all of our, we have incubator programs, accelerator programs, and actually innovation programs all online on our website. And we have thousands of entrepreneurs all over the world using those. At the same time, uh, we have our physical spaces. Now in San Francisco, our physical space is still closed because of the COVID resurgence, the variants coming out. But we have actually incubators in China in major cities like Shenzhen and Hangzhou and Xi'an and Wuhan and all these cities across China. And they are open because China has kind of walled itself off and contained COVID to a degree so that all our incubators there are wide open and filled with entrepreneurs. So I'm curious, because we're talking about systems and processes as part of this podcast, you have had to implement some kind of systems and probably periodically review them too. What, what are some tips you can give to people as you know they may be past starting out? Because we're not talking just to startups. We're talking to well-established companies too. And some might be one location, some might be multiple locations. And kind of going from that one to two to multiple locations require different things. And what are some of the takeaways that you have learned from what you guys did? So for us, we have a very unique situation. So we run these startup accelerators and incubators around the world. We also partner with other partners who run them. And it is always a challenge to scale physical locations internationally, you know, whether it's offices or in our case, locations that are open to startups for them to come for co-working and training and all these things. So we had to put a lot of processes into place um, to actually make this happen. So first of all, we what we did was all our all our knowledge base, our entire knowledge base we templatized. We basically put up into templates that our partners could use. So basically we put them into templates, uploaded them online into the cloud so that if they're running a startup course, if they want to know how the different revenue sources, if they want to know how we structure our co-working spaces, all of that, that information is online 
and readily available for them to access at any time. So it doesn't take up our time because it, right. you know, every so, time so we- So when you say templates, I mean, are, is, are you talking the same as what a lot of people call standard operating procedures or SOPs? Yes. Is that what you're talking about? Or are you exactly. talking about other kinds of templates? Uh, both. Yep. So yeah, we have our standard operating procedures for all our, our different uh, uh, training programs that we run and the kind of incubator and the co-working spaces that we run. And then we also have- different templates for different things. Like, you know, that are, the reason I say templates is because each of our lower, each of our local partners is given autonomy. So this is something special about the way we do stuff. So there are certain things we want them to follow, you know, rules about branding, rules about, you know, what what we do and how we engage partners. But there are other things we want them to uh, put their own imprint on and actually modify and change. And that's why I call them templates because they take them and they actually modify them. And this is really important because we are a Silicon Valley based organization. We understand how to train startups. And even we consult with many large corporations like Bosch and Huawei and, and Qualcomm. They've been our customers. We, we understand, we train them in innovation and, in you know, how to work with startups, how to build their own internal incubators. We have, we consult with them on and, when we do these things, we do it from a Silicon Valley perspective. Like what, what would we do in Silicon Valley? Now you go take China, for example, it's another world entirely. It's another ecosystem right. entirely. They want to understand to a certain degree how we do stuff in Silicon Valley, but they have their own way of doing things. And a lot of the things that we do don't necessarily apply to them or even work in China. So that's why I say templates, because we want them to uh, develop their own programs, but we also want them to learn from the things we do and and what works for us. So in every location, whether it's China, whether it's South Korea, whether it's our European partners, they all have things that they need to customize locally. And that's why we give them autonomy. So they, in a sense, can borrow our processes, borrow our, you know, everything we've set up, all, all our, our materials, but they can, they're also empowered to set up their own processes and do things their own way. And in order to do this, we actually help connect them with other partners locally in their region. For example, I'll give you an example. Yeah. In China, for every single incubator we have is run by a different partner. And the reason we do that is because in China, each city, I mean, these cities are huge. Like <laughs> you take a city in China and it can have, you know, the, the, the metropolitan region like Shanghai can have 40 million people. So it's, it's enormous when you think of it as a city bigger than some countries out there. Yes, um, and quite different in most countries and, and people's experience in those countries, right. absolutely. So, so in each region, in each city, we wanted a partner that is local. So our partner couldn't, you know, we couldn't have a national partner because China is just too huge. In each of these regions, especially in a place like China, you have to work very deeply with the government and local institutions and local businesses to make, to actually make it work, to actually make it happen. So therefore we don't have like one partner in China. We have a, we have, you know, dozens of partners actually across China that we work with in different capacities. So they each need to develop their own systems and processes while borrowing from ours and then collaborate with other partners of ours and other entities in China. So are they feeding information back to you to continue to improve the systems over time then? They do. So we get a lot of feedback, you know, even our our online programs. So all of our online programs were originally developed in English for entrepreneurs who speak English, you know, US entrepreneurs, Canadian entrepreneurs, and 
all the entrepreneurs coming to Silicon Valley from all over the world, they understand English. But uh, when you go to other countries like South Korea and China, um, our online programs didn't necessarily work. So especially in China, we had to localize them entirely uh, for those markets, mm -hmm. translate them, and then get imp input from them, like on what's valuable to them. What do they need to actually make it work? And a lot of times their requirements are something that we wouldn't even think of. No, I think it's interesting as, I, as we're talking here, one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, I, I come from a tech background. I, I live and breathe tech. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and a lot of people, when they think about systems and processes, they do think about the technical aspect of it. But everything you've talked about so far is, is not technology. It's written documents. Sure, there's some technology involved in how you share them and so forth. But, but I think a lot of times people do forget that that's also technology. It's just not a software program. You know? well, honestly, um, like in our case, it's very hard in all these different countries to get our partners to adopt similar technologies. Um, uh, so take, for example, even the cloud, right? We take it for granted. You know, everybody's on Dropbox, everybody's on Google, you know, Google Drive, mm -hmm. and, you know, we can all share documents. None of that works in China. Like, no, they're all like, they have this, this, their firewall around their country. You, they literally can't access Google except if they have a VPN, which isn't technically legal, although, you know, everybody has them. Um, but it's really hard for them to do this and things are very clunky. So we had to set up like in terms of processes, we had to set up an entirely parallel system, you know, within China to to mirror our own. So we had to pick local providers, the local cloud services we use Baidu. You know, there's Alibaba and other ones, but we chose to use Baidu and set up our whole system on Baidu cloud and actually have all those same documents and everything available to them. And to your point, you know, we wanted to keep this low tech. Like, honestly, we could have developed a lot of our own technology and invested mm -hmm. in that. Um, but there's a lot of off the shelf technology that does the job you know, nearly as well as we would do it. And so by using off the shelf technology for our processes and systems, we actually gain the advantage of, we don't have to train people in our technology, right? They already, they're already using Google Docs or they're already using Baidu Cloud. They're already using these. So they know how to use them. So then it's really just, can we make it as simple and, you know, kind of brain dead simple as possible for our partners to, understand our processes and access all the things they need without adopting anything that they don't already have. So, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that. I mean, it's, it's about keeping things simple, right? Yes. Um, uh, you know, people forget that, some, you know, when it comes to systems and processes, you know, it's not always how many features you have. It's the biggest feature you can have is to be simple, like to be easy to use. That yes, you, yes. You want to onboard partners quickly. You want to get them up to speed quickly. You don't, you know, if we have them adopt a whole new system, some of them just wouldn't do it. Like they wouldn't do it. They either they couldn't technically because of there's some technical implement, you know, like a firewall or something, or they couldn't. Uh, they just don't. Uh, want to invest the resources into learning a new platform or something that they're not already using. So that I, I think was our golden rule. Like, you know, how simple can we make this for all of our partners globally 
And that would reduce the amount of work on our part, the amount of human labor, like the whole reason for systems and processes is so that we don't have to scale our human cost, which is honestly our biggest cost that we have is human beings. Right. We can keep that to a minimum. Well, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, in our capacity, we work with both established companies that want to have a new system for their operations because they haven't found that the off-the-shelf products you know, they've been working with them, but they, they they kind of feel that they're lacking certain aspects. And so they want to build for themselves and or build for themselves and sell it to, to others. Other times it's people that are more kind of entrepreneurs and, and they have an idea and they want to put that into to action, right? And one of the jobs that we fill in that space is, sure, we can build anything you want, but you don't want us to build anything you want to begin with. Let's simplify it. Let's let's look at what are what is what are the, some of the the simplest, more core features that are going to help achieve your main goal. Now we can add all those bells and whistles later, but let's let's get that main meat and potato together first. And and it's hard for a lot of people that have visions because they yes. see all these opportunities. Totally. So I've been a software designer, like before I became, you know, venture capitalist, running an incubator, running startups, I was software. Now, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, first of all, you the off the shelf tools are good for somebody maybe like us, right, that is doing something quite general, and we're sharing documents and stuff like that. But you get into more specific processes, it's not going to work, it's going to totally right. break down. And, you know, you need custom, like you, you really need to go to that next level. Now, the question is, you know, when you have a client like that and they start throwing in everything in the kitchen sink because they don't really understand how to prioritize, you know, they're like, can you add this? Can you do this? Can you do that? And, and I'm sure like in your work, a big part of your job is to say, I know you want to do all these things, but you really don't. <laughs> you actually, right. you, actually <laughs> you think you want to do all these things, but it's actually going to make it much harder to use. We need to like drill down to what are the core functionalities that are really going to create value for you and just hone in on those and get those working. And, you know, usually my strategy was when we would have these clients and stuff, we would tell them, we literally say, look, let's focus on the core now and we can add everything else later. Because if you say you're not going to add it, they sort of freak out. Like, like, like right. you're not going to add these things. No, no, but let's get well, the core. And then they, uh, they they start to understand, like once it's up and running, you know, that actually all they needed was the core. And um, a lot of these things were extraneous. And then you can pick and choose as you go and really just prioritize them. Well, and it also taps into kind of the sales and marketing aspect of things too, because I've seen it many times and I've fallen for this myself too, where, well, I just need this one feature here and, and then we can go to market. Then we can really sell it. It's, it's yes. going to blow it out of the waters, you know? Yes. And, um, and, and I knew that that's not the case, but I had a good reminder uh, a couple of years back before I was with Amazonic and, and uh, I was a founder of a, a SaaS company and, uh, and uh, there were things that we wanted to do and they weren't too hard to do. So it wouldn't take us very long to do it. But um, this was, like I said, this was before I knew Amazonic. So I, I, was with a, I worked with a different agency at that point. And the founder there or owner, he's like, yes, we can do it. But really right now, all you need to do is go out and sell. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, you're right. 
we can we can table this one right now not spend any more time or money on it but just go out and sell yes and then you and learn that was a great a advice you learn a lot you yes, you do you, you well, learn. the thing is because you do because you think of all these things but really what matters is what your clients want you mean Exactly. And and so it's, there's I teach people there's no point in building all the sales the the bells and whistles until you know they're actually practical and needed. Exactly. See, this is what I we teach our entrepreneurs too, like in founder space. This is what I write about, like in my book, Make Elephants Fly, which is all about mm-hmm. the process of innovation. It is really, you know, you think, especially if you're selling to somebody who you aren't the customer necessarily like you don't you're not eating your own dog food if you're if you are the customer you have a better sense for what you really need but a lot of companies you know their customer somebody else you better get out to them as early as possible because all those things you think they need you know at least half of them they won't like they, they don't matter right. at all so you're going to waste you're not only going to waste a ton of time building those out but when but it's going to clutter it up like it's going to it's going to make it actually harder to use and i have a rule uh, that you know, I teach and I follow myself. And you know, a product can almost never be too simple. First of all, that's like it can. You know, simplicity is the best selling feature you have. And then so is that second, the rule? That's one of the rules. And then okay. uh, the second rule is that not only do you want to keep it simple, but when you get a product into the customer's hands, you really want to observe how they use it. Like. What are they using? What are they not using? Because like you pointed out earlier, which is really, really right on the target, almost every product people adopt for one reason. They don't adopt it for five reasons. They're not like five reasons in their head they're adopting this product. Very true. You know, they, they have a priority in their mind, right? Some, some really tough problem they want to solve or something really that they want to do better, like not incrementally better, but like exponentially better than, than they're doing now. And if you can add that one piece of value to them, boom, you know, they will buy your product for that reason. And all those other things are extras. You know, they, they're nice to haves, but really like think about the, the products you use, like on a daily basis, you know, almost all of them, initially you adopted them for one reason. You might find out they do a lot of other things too, but you just, you adopted them for just that one reason. Yeah, I've seen that where, um, I, I've heard many people say, I got this because of, but I uh, discovered it also did this and this, and that was pretty cool. Yeah. And, and those extra things keep you, re- keep you retain, you know, retain the user, right? They keep you using that product because there's all these extra functionalities and great things. But, you know, top of mind, you know, when I go out um, and when I consult with startups about doing sales and about, and, you know, like you said, sales and building a product are tied together, right? <laughs> like, you know, you yep. build a product to sell, right? If, if there's not a demand out there, is there isn't an overwhelming demand, you're not gonna sell it. So there's no point in building it. And when you go out to customers, I'm always like, figure out what their top three priorities are. If you're not one of them, you know, if you're not one of their top three problems or top three goals, you're literally not gonna make the sale because none of us care. <laughs> like, we're all too busy. Right. You know, a lot of startups are kind of, forced to do it this way because they don't have endless money. Um, but you've also worked with companies that have been in your portfolio that have scaled as well as like you mentioned, some of the bigger companies yes. that you've consulted with. Do you find that they have kind of at that point lost sight of this process or 
are they still good at implementing this kind of approach to new product developments? It depends. So some of them, it's <laughs> they've lost sight of it. You know, there's a lot of bureaucracy in there. There's a lot of hierarchy in a lot of these organizations, and people are doing things to please their boss or for other reasons. And they're not they're not re, they're not going to the customer early enough. So I can give you an example. I was with one of these leading companies, you know, these Fortune 100 company, global companies, consulting them on innovation, and uh, they were going about innovation totally wrong, like totally mm-hmm. wrong. So um, uh, they had first of all what they did when they, they decided they would innovate, which sounds like a great idea, and a lot of companies do this. A lot of big companies do this. They ran an innovation competition where they had- Oh yes, I've seen a lot of those. You've seen a lot of them, right? All these companies doing it. Like we want to innovate. We want to come up with new products. We want to like, we want to be like a startup. So we want to innovate. So we're going to run a competition. We're going to have all, you know, our employees submit ideas and then we'll have a select team of managers and executives and they will choose what we think are the best ideas. Yeah, well, well, I, I wonder, you know, I feel sometimes that those competitions are more because they want to be trendy. And they want to get some of that Shark Tank feel or something along those lines, so people feel it's cool and and, and whatever more than it is about the innovation itself. It's for not all reasons. the times, of course, yeah. but I, I think there's an aspect of that too. It motivates employees because it sounds like everybody can participate, and mm-hmm. it's great PR. You know, it, they see other companies doing it, so they copy it. But I will tell you the fundamental problem with this. So, for example, you know, they choose these ideas. Who's doing the choosing? right? The managers are doing the choosing. You know, what are the managers basing it on? Whatever, you know, whatever ideas they happen to have in their head. And so first of all, these these managers and executives choosing which projects get selected, they're usually thinking of their current existing priorities. Like they're embedded in their business units, right? They're not thinking about totally disruptive ideas. So they may weed out some of the best ideas there. Secondly, they're picking, this is the even bigger problem. They're picking the idea. They're not picking the team, honestly. So they select people Mm -hmm. who may have had a good idea, but they are not the ones who should be implementing it. And, and, or they may have a bad idea that was selected and they're not the ones who should be (laughs) implementing it. And so uh, they uh, get put, they, they automatically, the person who's selected feels like, oh, this is validation. My idea works. The manager chose me. Now they're giving me money to actually form an innovation team and actually execute on this. It's not validation that your managers chose this because your customers didn't choose it. Like your customers weren't involved in that process, that startup competition at all. Like it was an internal competition. The, you know, the, 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 te- the management team chose this product. It's getting funded. And then I go back to these entrepreneurs and I'm in there and I'm like, okay, the first thing we need to do is get right out to the customer. Like, I don't care that your managers chose this. We need to figure out what your, does your customer even want this? Mm-hmm. More than half the time they go out to the customer, they start talking to customers. I could come back with real proof, like real proof that this is on their, their top of their list. Like that they are absolutely need this product. Not a nice to have. They go out there more than half the time, the customer doesn't even care. Like they don't care. They don't really care that they're Which is why you find a lot of non-performing products. Right. In these big corporations that are supposedly innovating. Then they go back and I tell them, like, and this has happened more than once. I've said, okay, we have determined now that the customer doesn't want it. We need to totally scrap this. And to them, they've already taken ownership of this idea, right? They won the competition. And, and 
So they don't want to do it. Also, even if they agree with me that, yes, we should scrap this and try something totally different, they are like, I can't do it. And I'm like, why? You agree that this will not work. We will build this out. We'll spend a lot of money and the customer doesn't care. Well, you don't understand. My manager approved it. And my manager wants this to go through because they sold it up the chain of command, right? They yeah. do not want, they, they want me to do this. Yeah, but we just showed it doesn't work. Like there is no more, the customer doesn't care. So this is the reason starting with the idea is the wrong thing. Like what, what innovation teams need to do in these corporations is literally pick the right people, pick natural innovators, the people who are challenging the orthodoxy, the people who are always trying new things, experimenting, hone in on these people, put them on a team and tell them, we don't care what ideas you come up with. We want you to focus on this area of our business and come up with lots of ideas and then start testing them. That way they don't get wed to an idea. They don't get locked into right. an idea in this corporate That's, that's what I was going to say. That's one of the other problems too, is that people get so married to their ideas. And that happens with startups too, all the time too. Oh, that yeah. yeah. They try to force something through just because it's their baby versus actually changing direction and making something that people actually want. Absolutely. So on my other book, Surviving a Startup, I hone in exactly on this problem. You know, most startups fail because they fall in love with their idea. You, you said it like it's their baby, you know? Yep. And I have a section in there called Kill Your Baby. Like you, your job- I saw that. <laughs> your job is actually not to love this baby, nurture it and try to get everybody else to love your baby. Like, look, if your baby is ugly and nobody loves it, you've got to recognize that right away, you know? Get rid of that baby and get a new one. Um, so yes, this is a problem that- doesn't just phase large corporations, medium-sized companies, but also very young startups. They are they fall in love with their ideas and they can't let go. So here's a couple of other things too that come to mind. So one of the things I, I one thing I've learned um, is that people perform according to how they're measured. And so when you have an innovation hub like that, if the ones that are picking out the ideas think that their picks are going to reflect how they are as managers, that's going to really weigh heavily into, and, and maybe subconscious, but it's still there. And it's going to weigh into the decisions they make. And, and they may pick something that is safer or something that is more crazy or whatever, because they can, you know, get their staff and say, I did that or whatever. Or they can say, well, I, I, you know, I chose this because it was good for a company because it was safe and risk, uh, you know, less risk, whatever. And, and there's all sorts of different reasons. I mean, we can go on and on about that, but but that's also one of the things I think that are, are holding people back. And then as far as the killing the baby part, there, there was a good saying I learned from somebody just a few months ago. And, uh, and he said, love your customer, not your business. And what he meant by that was specifically related to startups or, or product innovation is that you cannot fall so much in love with that baby that you disregard a customer because then you won't have a customer. And so if you focus on the customer and what they want, then you build better products and solutions and you have a functional business. This is exactly right. It doesn't matter how much you love your product really doesn't, right? Or you love your business. What matters is how much the customer loves it. So the only way to get the customer to love it is to love your customer, like want to please your customer. You know, you love them, you want to give them what they fall in love with. So that dynamic is really at the core. And another thing you were saying, you know, about KPIs, measuring, right? Measuring what people do determines what they do. 
right? So how you measure people in your organization determines what they will end up doing. Now, most organizations want, you know, they're used to measuring things by efficiency, by, you know, the balance sheet, all these different things, sales, they have all their processes in place to measure people by these, these metrics that make sense for a traditional business or a well-established business. However, when you are innovating, when you are trying something new, none of those apply because you don't have sales. You don't, you know, it's not about efficiency. Innovation isn't about efficiency. You know, in fact, it's about, it's a very inefficient process. You're trying all sorts of different things and killing them off and going back and, you know, changing direction all the time. So you can't use the traditional metrics that people use to evaluate innovators. And if you do, you will end up stifling their innovation, which is sort of what you pointed out to. Like if you're measured by not taking risks, but by producing results, then you aren't going to innovate. Like you're going to go with the tried and true. Like that, Mm -hmm. like who wants to fail? Nobody in an organization wants to fail. Like no matter what they say, failure is fine. Nobody wants to fail. So you totally need to change if you're going to set up a really good innovation process, how you measure your people. And, you know, I I mapped out uh, this innovation loop that really ties into the metrics you need to measure to find out if the innovators in your organization are making progress. Because you do want to measure them. You do want to have insight into what they're doing. But it's not traditional insight, not the traditional way of measuring. So what you do is the innovation process is, uh, I'll simplify it for, for the sake of this talk, but basically you come up with a hypothesis, an idea, like of something you want to try. And then you design an experiment, really critical. And the experiment involves the customer, like going out there, actually uh, getting feedback from that customer to prove or disprove that they really need this in their business. Then you uh, run that experiment, gather data from that real data, and then you analyze that data. And if that, and you, depending on what that data tells you, you change, either change your hypothesis or you, or you keep it, right? You're saying, wow, that's actually true. And then you go on to test something else, another hypothesis on your path. And the hypotheses are basically uh, prioritized according to what's most critical for your business. Like what, what will really kill your business first if, if it's false? So if, as long as you get beyond that point, then you can safely go to the next one. And that innovation loop, when you are actually wanting to measure, put metrics around it for the innovators, it's really, you have to measure you know, how well they're, they are designing their experiments, how, what quality of data they are getting, what analysis techniques are they using on this data to make their decision-making. And then ultimately, you know, what decisions they're making, but not just that, it's also how quickly they go through this loop. Because if you take you know, months and months and months to basically go through that loop each time, you're going to be innovating at too slow pace. You'll never come to the right answer. So you need, right. to, you need to, the experiments can't be too costly. They can't be too time intensive. They have to be, they have to, you have to have this rapid cycle. Like how fast are they going through it? What's their learning curve? What conclusions are they coming to? Then you can start to, understand if this innovation team is really performing or if they're not really performing. And and it goes back to what you talked about earlier by simplifying it. Like you said, if you have an innovation process that is too complicated, too time-consuming, it's not simplified, so you have to simplify it. Right, um, right. I, I would even say that some uh, you know, well-established organizations of, of any size 
uh, that may do more the traditional metrics that you talked about, also can find benefit in reviewing whether or not those metrics are really what matter to the business. Yes. And a lot of, a times, lot of times they aren't. They're not. <laughs> They, they may be outdated. They may be. They may not really address customer needs or the ultimate goals you have. And businesses are always changing too. So you know the metrics could be have been around a long time, and like they may have applied ten or twenty years ago, but no longer today. Exactly. And and, and uh, you know a common metric, like you said, is efficiencies. But mm-hmm. what does that mean? Does that mean we keep our people busy, or does it mean that we get more product out the door that actually sells? Yes. Yes. And also, you know, being efficient is always the best. So when you're in knowledge workers, it's not necessarily, it's it, a, a lot of times it's the quality of the decisions they're making, not, mm-hmm. not how fast things are moving. Like things can be very efficient, but you could come out with, you know, you're not really innovating. You're not really pushing the boundaries. You're not, nobody's really taking chances. It's just efficient because we're doing things the same way that we always did. Yeah. So in in your book, Making Elephants Fly, one of the things you bring out there is which methodologies and processes yield lasting results? Yes. So um, lasting results, uh, I mean, it's a relative term, right? So basically what you want to do when you put in place processes or in systems in your company is make sure that they align with all the different things that are of value to that organization. So first of all, um, what's of value to the customers, right? That's my number one thing. Like if you you had to base your processes and systems on anything, it would be on making the satisfaction of your customers really satisfied with your product so that they don't go anywhere else. Number two is your employees themselves, right? Are they, are the systems and processes, do they agree with them? Because if they are unhappy, you know, with the, the 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 systems and processes you put in place, you're going to lose your best employees. They're gonna they're gonna literally go if they don't feel like they have. Enough. A lot of times, a process and a system is great, but if it takes away from an employee actually uh, feeling ownership, an employee feeling like they have some decision making power, flexibility, you know, these things you can be very efficient, but you could turn your employees into drones where you're really not getting the best out of them. Like they want to contribute, but because of all these processes and systems, they feel like either they're bogged down with bureaucracy or they're limited in what they are actually able to contribute to the job. So I think that's an important thing to to factor in. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I have seen that several times where um, it, it, it is too strange in many ways or where it's like you said, focus on the wrong things, or it's to, or it's made so complicated, or has such a high learning curve that, I mean, how many times have you heard people say, for example, with um, um, software that they're only using about ten percent of the features? Oh, every day, like me too. Like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, so that's all part of it. Like, you got to have the things that are in place that, that make sense to have the, them and use that. That and um, yeah, so I think you brought us some really, really valuable things. I I want to ask also because mm-hmm. you have a couple of other books. Um, you have the uh, Five Forces, and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute here. Um, but you have mentioned the Surviving a Startup, 
And, and there are a couple of topics from that one that I want to kind of highlight and, and get your take on because in today's world, you know, you talk about streamlining, you talk about lean, you talk about bootstrapping, you talk about, you know, most people feel that or, or need some kind of technology in there, whether it's off the shelf or, or custom built or whatever. And one of the first things you bring up in that book is a chapter or a segment of, of a chapter on um, paying for talent. Mm. Very important. At what point would you say that that makes sense for people? And it kind of goes along, I mean, um, with also um, investing in a team. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'm understanding the paying for talent is maybe the freelancer or the agency or somebody else, or maybe it's a hire versus inventing in a, uh, investing in a team is now you're starting to kind of get to the stage where we're, we're building up our own internal team. Is that correct? Both. So in, in my fundamental rule of talent is don't be cheap. So what I found, you know, I've run my own software development companies. You know, I've been an entrepreneur. I now work with hundreds of startups and seeing all the problems they have. Repeatedly, you should be going after the best talent you can. So I know for a fact that, for example, the difference between a good engineer and a great engineer isn't linear. <laughs> a, a, a great, you know, a great engineer isn't 30% better. A great engineer is like five times better. 10 times better than a good engineer. Like when you have these really amazing engineers, like one person could just like crank it out and, and, you know, do so create so much more value for your company than somebody who's just proficient. You know? So, well, absolutely. And, 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 you know, you asked me about paying for talent. So should this great engineer be paid 30% more than a good engineer? Absolutely not. If they're going to contribute like five times more ultimately to your, you know, to your bottom line, to getting stuff done, you could pay them double and still come out ahead. So why not pay that great engineer double, make sure you get them uh, as opposed to settling for a good engineer and still um, you'll, and you'll, you'll wind up so that, that person will be so much more productive. Well, and not just productive, but they will also cause lesser headache later on. Uh, and I got a very good example of that. Some years ago, I was I hired a guy. He uh, seemed to, I, I did an initial test and he kind of passed there. So he seemed to know what he was doing. And uh, he was pricing himself very, very low. In fact, he was willing to accept $7 an hour. And I said, I'm not willing to pay you that. I'll pay you 15. Right. It was a smaller project. He spent 80 hours and not over two weeks, but over four months. And he could not complete it. It just didn't work. I've had I had it. another guy that I knew and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to him instead. He cost me $150 an hour. So if you think of it from a price perspective, I, I should never go to him because he was he was my most expensive guy. 10X. 10X, exactly. Guess what? He did it in three hours. <laughs> there like, you go. That's exactly. If I had gone with him in the first place, I just, I had just asked him instead. Wasted. Yeah. I would totally. have had so much more profit in that project. So much more. 
And, and it would have taken to... four months, four months of your time and headache. You know, exactly. You, you waste. How valuable is your time? You know, all the, <laughs> trying to get that guy to complete the project. I had exactly the same experience. This is why I say never bottom fish. Never go for the lowest price person. Go for, you know, like you said, absolutely the best person you can get for that job. If it costs you sometimes 10x more, you still come out ahead, which is, you know, isn't intuitive for a lot of people and wasn't for yeah. me until I experienced it. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, our developers are mostly in India and, and that's where the company was formed and we've done. Most of our business here in the U.S., but we've had you know customers all over, and we've worked with some big name brands like Groupon and Staples. But we've also worked with a lot of startups. And sometimes I get the feeling of when I talk to people, especially that are startups, um, that because they know that our team is over there, they expect it to cost next to nothing. Well, mm. there's still time involved. There's still talent involved. There's still a whole bunch of pieces that go into building a software. And, and it's very interesting to kind of go through that process with somebody. And, and in fact, it was interesting because just about three minutes before we started this podcast, I got a text from one of our clients and he said, this is what he said. He had had another team, um, which was uh, a very experienced team. They built, they've been part of building one of the unicorns and they had gone through the bill that we had done for them. And this is what it said. They had great things to say about your developers. They did a fantastic job with the code. And, and, you know, you can pay for that or you can pay for something else where it may or may not work. It may be broken. It may work for a little bit. Um, like um, another example, so a, a client that we talked to or a prospect we talked to, they had built their, their tech, um, had some um, partly agency, partly freelancers, kind of a little bit of a mix uh, working on it. And uh, we're running into some issues and needed some additional help. And so we reviewed the code that they had and came to find out that while they had used a, a, a framework that's becoming more and more common now, it's still fairly new in terms of maturity of the framework, but it's it's gotten a lot of popularity. Um, the developers had not followed the standard procedures and processes when using this framework. So it was really a patchwork and so we ended up saying to the client, we said, well, we can do it, but you have to realize that every single time you want to update something, it's going to take three times as long mm. because so, the way it's built. So you have to basically redo it. So we said, alternatively, we spent three months and rebuild the whole thing. And everything after that is going to be so much faster and going to save yes. you lots of time, lots of money. Yeah. So those, those, I agree with exactly what you're saying. And one of my points is what applies to employees like hiring an engineer applies to contractors, third-party companies that you get like yours, that people hire you going for the cheapest. Don't do it. Like don't go for the cheapest <laughs> one. Don't base it on price. You need to go for the one that really has the expertise that can really deliver because it's the same 
because like you, you're you're probably taking a lot of care to hire really good engineers and you're willing to pay more. So therefore it's going to, and you have all the processes in place and everything else to make it work efficiently, you know, and communicate with the customer. Therefore, all those things cost money, right? And if they right. go for the if they go for the cheapest one, it's just like hiring the cheapest engineer, the $7 an hour engineer. It's just not, they're not going to get, they're going to get. Right. And that's, that's what people don't realize. I mean, we had a client that needed a specific skill set and we didn't have it internally. Um, but we were part of a project that we'd been working with him for years on um, just continual, continual development and everything. And he, he needed, uh, or they, you know, his company, well-established company, um, and they needed just this specific skill set. And we said, okay, we can find that. What they know and they appreciate, but most people don't realize, we went through over 200 interviews to find the candidate that did not just have the right skill set, but also fit in every other way from a personal and cultural aspect as well. Mm-hmm. See, that's that's the difference. You're not just hiring blindly. Anybody who can do it at the lowest price, putting them on the job, they're going to end up screwing it up. <laughs> so um, all these things are true, right? So whoever you're getting to do the work, you know, spend the spend what you it takes to get the best because in the end, it's going to pay off. Um, I I actually tell companies like yours, you know, that work with their clients. It's not the market rate that matters, right? If you're pricing your prices according to the market rate, you're underselling yourself because you like, if you interview 200 people to get just the right person, you are creating a lot more value than the, the, mm-hmm. your competitors are. So like companies like yours need to go into the customer's mind and actually get them to understand what they're, the value that they're really getting, you know, not the, not the value, you know, that the, the market commands, it's the value that you actually are offering, which is significantly higher. Right. So another another thing that you have here in in uh, as far as kind of the, the that book the the uh, surviving a startup, uh, you also talk about. Um, and I'll mention three chapters, and you talk a little bit about some of them, but I'm mentioning the three because I think they go a little bit hand in hand here. One is hardware versus software. The other one is um, shoehorning technology and then design thinking. Okay, those that's a lot to cover. Let me give you a brief lowdown on each. So hardware versus software. You know, hardware is hard. Like it's really hard. It's inflexible. Like you, you once you get into the customer's hands, it's the software that usually creates most of the value. It's not the hardware. We can see this with the iPhone. Like whatever, you know, it's, you know, the iPhone isn't that different from any other smartphone out there. It's the software that made it. Mm-hmm. Now, you look at everything out there, um, when there are entrepreneurs out there, I always tell them, focus on the software. Software, you know, software is where you can lock in your customers. Software is where you can monetize your customers long-term, you know, with recurring revenue. Software is where you can put in place the processes that create real value. Um, the hardware, um, usually, you know, robotics, you know, there is a lots of potential, but it's very difficult because you have to develop incredibly good hardware and software to make it work. You talked about, um, what was the second one you, you did? Think, I know design thinking Shoes, was one. Shoehorning software. Yeah, shoehorning. <laughs> don't, you really don't want to um, shoehorn software that doesn't fit. Like with anything uh, you're doing, um, 
it, it has to be a, a perfect fit. And like in your case, what you're doing, like you're creating custom software, that is so that you don't, you're not wasting your time trying to do things in a very clunky way with software that doesn't work. And then the third- and, and most of our clients, that's, that's what they say. We've tried all these things and it just doesn't work the way we work. <laughs> exactly. So don't do it. <laughs> like get, get a, a solution that exactly fits and you'll be so much happier and so much, you'll get so much more value out of it in the long term, even though it costs more upfront. Um, and then design thinking. I think design thinking is so important because design thinking is customer centric thinking. And we've been talking about that throughout this podcast, you know, getting inside the head of your customer, really understanding how the customers use your products, what they do, what they're at, what, what features they're actually using, what features they're not using. If they're not using a feature, get rid of it. Like, why is it there? You know, just kill that feature. And, and a lot of companies that I've seen actually use that design thinking methodology to figure out what the product is because they put something out there, a minimum viable product, get it to market, get people using it. And then they start using a completely different feature set or in a different way than they thought. Now, I'll give you an example. You said you work with Groupon, you know, the big company Groupon. Originally, when the Groupon was a startup, they were called The Point. And it was a social good startup, a startup where people got on there, formed groups to do social good. Well, one of the people that was using the software formed a group to actually help people get discounts by group buying. This wasn't the Andrew Mason's idea, the founder. He was like, actually, when he saw it, he goes, that's not really doing social good. I want to stop them from doing that. But his investor, the angel investor said, no, they are onto something. Don't stop them from doing that. Let's watch and see what happens. They started watching and the investor started to press Andrew Mason, the, the CEO, Look, just get rid of this, the point site. It's not, nothing's really happening there. Like it's going nowhere. Like, but these people doing the social buying, they're onto something, you know? And then boom, that became Groupon. They rebranded it. They, they built it out. It became Groupon. But it was really developed by actually going in with design, you know, looking at what people are actually doing, how they're actually using the software, and then taking that and actually using that to pick the direction. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. You have shared a ton of knowledge and value here today. And, and in the last few minutes, I just want to ask a couple more questions because you have a book um, that I mentioned earlier that's called Five Forces. And, and this is kind of projecting into the future, right? Yes. So, so what do you see as far as trends in technology or, or even as systems and processes specific, specifically, what are some of the things you see coming in the future? Yeah. So the book, The Five Forces, is all about how the technology coming in the next decade and two, it's going to completely transform business, industry, governments, our, our entire lives, like how we live our lives. And, and that's a given. And um, the fact is that we, the amount of technology we're developing, innovation is accelerating. Like people are innovating more and more. Oh, yeah. And you're like, why, why is that? Like, why is innovation accelerating? Well, simply for two reasons. Number one, we are more connected than ever. And the more connected we are, the more ideas we can exchange, the more we can collaborate. You look at people around the world, you're working with a team in India. That wasn't possible before, right? So you're tapping this whole talent pool in India and you're bringing it together with corporations in the US and other countries. Like none of that was possible before. All these minds, all this information is being uploaded to the internet and shared, right? 
massively. And then we have platforms to actually allow people to make it more systematized, to actually access this information, to build upon it, open source software. All of this is new. And this is why innovation is accelerating and is going to continue. So we are going to see uh, lots of new technology coming into the marketplace. Like, you know, artificial intelligence is what I think one of the most powerful technologies, if not the most powerful ever developed. Like, because what it does is it makes everything smarter. All these systems and processes are going to be AI powered. Like, they're all going to be every single business. I don't see a single business on the planet that can't be improved in some way by AI. Literally none. Like, and, and oh, if you I, look I at totally it, agree. And especially, yeah, especially since we're talking about system, um, systems and processes and there's, there's kind of two, and I, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but there, I just want to clarify for some people, because there's kind of two roads or branches of, of what is labeled AI, because the, the term AI or artificial intelligence is used quite a lot these days. And a lot of times people market themselves as a software, for example, that's an AI software. Really what it is, is that it automates your processes. You set connectors. You say, if this happened, then this should happen. And it just takes care of that flow. There's no there's no machine there that does a thinking process for you. Yeah, it there's just no machine executes learning. the commands that you put in. Yes. Right. And that's the other part where a lot of people think that's really what it is. But that's machine learning. Then you take the data with where the machine learns, and then that applies to those processes and becomes really more intelligent. When so I, talk I just about, want to kind of put that out there yeah, for people. So. No, you're absolutely right. When I talk about artificial intelligence, I'm talking about machine learning, deep learning algorithms. Not right, and know, that's just, what I figured. That's why I want to not make that just systemic algorithms where you go, you know, branching, you know, if this, then that. Yep. That's not AI. But a lot of people do confuse it. Um, however, that machine learning part is going to totally transform things. And we're really just at the beginning of that. You know, it's it's such a broad technology. I compare it to the internet. You know, like the internet transformed every business on the planet, every everything we do. This AI is in the process of doing that right now. And we will have more advanced hardware to take care of. The whole ecosystem is developing with IoT devices, you know, going into factories, going mm-hmm. into offices, going into homes, you know, all this data gathering, all these computer, all these, you know, our smartphones, they are, they are the fuel. This data is the fuel that will make this AI so effective at doing what it does. Yeah, absolutely. So before I ask my last question to you, I, I want to see if there's any kind of technology or resource or anything that you recommend to people. Okay. So, so well, first of all, I'll wrap up the five forces by saying we just touched the tip of the iceberg on that book because it doesn't just go into to AI. It goes into uh, space technology, all the technology we're developing now for space travel. It goes into DNA, gene editing, goes into uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, brain-computer interfaces. So how all of this is going to really transform us. And um, I will tell you, uh, it's really exciting. Like the next 10 years are going and tw- and 20 years out are going to be mind blowing. In terms of what I would recommend, so there's. Well, I was just, just going to say you you even did a TEDx talk on on things coming up in the future. So I would. I did. People so see if that you want to tune in, there's one. Just search for uh, Steve Hoffman Brain Computer Interfaces, my TED talk, and it, it will it'll blow your mind <laughs> because this technology is being yeah. developed today. 
It's not science fiction. It's actually being developed right now. So in terms of what I recommend, so there, you know, honestly, um, any software that can automate processes in your life. So like you and I, for example, uh, we use Calendly, right? This Mm Calendly.com for our calendar. And it has this whole workflow in there, which is really, really nice, you know? And I'm using it and I found it saves a huge amount of time. Like I would have to an assistant actually schedule all our meetings. Don't need that anymore. You know, I, I basically, I'm always adopting whatever technology I can to make my time more efficient and then my company's process more efficient. So I would say Calendly, there are a lot of, you know, like Asana, a great project management software out there. There are, you know, I use the whole Google workspace. I'm big into all of mm-hmm. Google stuff. Like I'm huge into that. I'm, I'm a Google guy. And um, it just goes on and on. I, I could just go on. I'll stop. Well, I think, I think what you said is there's a good measuring stick to what you said, I think. And that's because there's so many things out there and people can easily get overwhelmed with, with all the options. Yes. Right. And you can buy into a lot of different softwares and spend a whole lot of money and time kind of trying to learn it. But, but really kind of the, the thing that I found out for myself is, you know, is this something that is beneficial to me right now to either simplify something I'm doing or that will help in one way or another simplify what our business is doing so that we can focus on more revenue-generating tasks? That is ex- if the answer is yes, then yes, I should get it. If not, then it's a waste of time and money. <laughs> I think the key word was simplify. So I try out lots of software. Actually, the majority I don't use, you know, because I find it may add more, it may allow me to do more things, but it, it, there it's complicated. And I just don't have time Mm -hmm. to invest in key in, in, in another platform. Like, you know, how many platforms do I want to use? Like I, I, you know, I want to, I want to use the platforms that are really easy to use and really targeted. Like they produce a tangible result. You know, at the end of the day, my life is, I can see it. It's better. Um, These other features, a lot of times they're complicated, but they're nice to have features. Oh, that would be nice. That would be nice. But it, but it, then again, it's those nice to have features are coming at a cost, which is me engaging with this platform all the time, instead of doing things in a much simpler way, which you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Okay. Well, last last question for you. Yes. And and again, thank you so much for everything that you have brought and and the knowledge that you share. And it's exciting to see a lot of things that you're involved with. Um, what's the best way for people to connect with either you or or Founder Space? The the best way, very simply, founderspace.com. Go there. We have tons of videos, like you can watch all these videos we've been talking about. We have an online innovation program, an online startup program, my books, whatever. Go to Founderspace. You can contact me. We answer all our emails too. So if you you have questions about innovation, if if you're interested in doing a startup, just reach out. You can also find me on LinkedIn or any of the social networks. Just search for Steve Hoffman, Founderspace. Great. Anything else you you want to add? that we haven't covered that's it i think we covered it all so um you know, awesome <laughs> and, and i'm very happy to be your first podcast it's just wonderful to be out there with you um thank you for having me on your show well thank you for coming on the show too and i hope we uh, get the chance to talk many more times offline as well 
because uh, offline I, and online. I, I, think I will look forward. Offline to and online, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so take care. Have a good lunch <laughs> if it's lunchtime where you are. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of C-Suite Perspective. If you would like to be a guest on our show, go to go.amazatic.com forward slash apply. That is go.amazatic.com forward slash apply. And don't forget to hit subscribe to C-Suite Perspective Systems and Processes and leave us a review. Feel free to also share it with your friends and colleagues through your favorite social media channels. And feel free to reach out and connect via social media or go to our website, amazatic.com. That is A-M-A-Z-A-T-I-C.com. My name is Chris, and I thank you for listening to C-Suite Perspective, Systems and Processes. Thank you.